This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Well, should you choose your moose cartridge based on the moose you hope to get or on the bear that hopes to get you? Some good answers on this episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Hi, everyone. Say the team advised me a little bit ahead of time on our questions and answers that some of them were going to deal with bear cartridges, moose cartridges, elk cartridges, and sensible choices for hunting in areas where you might run into any of them. So let's get to these questions and find out. But before we do, we have a correction. This is from Jeremy, and he uh, says, Ron, this is just a minor detail, but there are two larger calibers that fit in AR-15s, the 458 SOCOM and the 50 Beowulf. And he is correct, and I appreciate that correction, Jeremy. I am not real familiar with either of those cartridges, but I have heard of them before. And that was in response to a video we did in which we were talking about sort of the limitations on cartridges and their sizes for that AR-15 platform. And I had come up with a 458 Bushmaster, which I have shot. So there are a couple of more, and I heard from other folks too, and there were a couple of others in that category, but they were more wildcat than commercial cartridge. So that's why I didn't deal with those. All right. Now, I think these are the moose and bear cartridge questions. I have hunted moose, and this is from Sergeant 1911. I have hunted moose in Alaska, and the rifle caliber for the moose is not the issue. The issue, simply the hunter is not the top of the food chain, so the minimum bear cartridge <laughs> is the best moose caliber. Thanks for the video. <laughs> and that is a good point, and I heard that or saw that from several commenters on that particular video. And it's not a bad idea, you know, it's a real sensible choice. You might find that 270 or even a, a 6.5 Creedmoor, any of the lighter flat shooting cartridges that are traditionally used for long range work would be great for, say, doll sheep up in Alaska or mountain goat. 
or even caribou. But if you're out in grizzly habitat and you're walking through the alders, where I should say crawling through the alders to get up to that sheep and a bear suddenly attacks, do you really want to be addressing him with a 140 grain bullet? <laughs> so a lot of folks up there use a big rifle. It's really could be considered too big for the animal they're taking. But if a bear attacks, they figure they've got a little bit more punch to slow him down, if not stop him outright. And as many of my friends say, there's no such thing as too dead when a bear is charging you. So even if you're shooting a sheep with a 416 Remington Magnum, and I have a friend who's done that, the sheep is still your sheep. You've still killed it. You still have your venison. Everything's wonderful. But just in case that bear decides he wants a piece of your sheep as you're taking them off the mountain, you've got something with which to defend yourself. Good question. Good point. Definitely consider that. Now, this one is from Kirk, and he asks, So, it seems that when comparing elk to moose cartridges, you seem to be on the higher end of the spectrum for elk and on the lower end of the spectrum of cartridges for moose, in regards to energy and velocity, at least. So, are elk just that much tougher, pound for pound? Or is it a distance issue, or what? Yeah, good questions, Kirk. Here is my take on it. I often recommend a little bit heavier cartridges for elk because of their reputation for durability. Yes, it does seem that elk are able to take a punch and keep on going a little more than a moose. Um, I don't know if I have enough experience with both to really nail it down. Probably, gosh, I don't know. I'm in the teens probably on, on bull elk and six bull moose, I think. But what I have found was that the moose were pretty easy to take down with fairly light bullets in the chest cavity of the vital zone, whereas the elk would kind of keep going. I don't know if it's an issue of them being hunted more or being a little more alert and afraid of people and just knowing that they need to run and get the heck out of Dodge. But yeah, that's kind of why I went there. I don't know that an elk should be able to survive a penetrating wound through the lungs. You talk about a sucking chest wound and it collapses the lungs. But boy, I've heard some stories from some pretty reputable outfitters and hunters and game wardens about elk that were just center punched right in the boiler room. And they got away uh, after some significant tracking for significant distances that just should not have happened. What exactly goes on there? I don't know. Um, I think it's definitely a possibility to slide a bullet through lung tissue and not really hit the enough of the arteries to cause sufficient bleeding perhaps or maybe some fat tissue within the cavity plugs up the hole so you don't have a sucking chest wound I don't know you'd have to probably talk to a doctor or a pathologist or somebody who really understands that stuff but you can't go wrong by using a bigger bullet heavier bullet or a more precise bullet at least so, yeah, I think, Kirk, that you are right. You picked up on something. I have gone to a little bit heavier bullets and cartridges with a little more drive to them, shall we say, for elk over moose. Now, your point about distance and velocity, those are good because velocity is a critical part of energy. Uh, you double the weight of the projectile and you double the energy, but you double the velocity, you quadruple the energy. So you are putting more energy on target. But as I always say, energy does not kill. 
it's tissue destruction that kills. So just a whole bunch of energy through the animal isn't necessarily doing any damage. The tissues are plastic enough, flexible enough that they can absorb that energy and not get torn all the time. I always compare a couple of football players, uh, linemen running into each other at a certain speed and their mass at that speed. And it ends up being about like getting shot with a 130 grain bullet from a 270 at 100 yards or so. <laughs> Guess which one's going to hurt more? <laughs> So, yeah, it's a complicated subject and physiology is involved in all of it. So just never hurts to have a little more. And I always say balance the magnemitis with precision. I would rather shoot a smaller bullet with less energy and put it in the right place with accuracy than to have a big one that I'm a little bit afraid of shooting. And then I end up flinching and I don't make a perfect shot because those just never work out. All right, that was some good stuff. Now they're telling me that I need to get to the unseen questions here in general. First one up is from someone calling him or herself CEF. And they ask, Ron, any thoughts on the 7 by 57 Accuracy, recoil, is it ever coming back? Hmm, yeah, good one. 757, I'm sure you mean the 757 Mauser. And that was designed by... Peter Mauser in Germany in 1892, and then it was um, picked up by the Spanish Army in the 1893 Mauser rifle, the predecessor of the famous 98, which obviously came in 1898. And the, the Spaniards then used that in a war against us that a lot of people don't know about. It's not one of the more well-known wars that we ever uh, had, but it was about 1895, seven, somewhere in there. We had battles in Cuba. You've heard San Juan Hill. That was one of the battles, Teddy Roosevelt and his Rough Riders, a bunch of cowboys and different people that went over with him kind of as volunteers. And then it spilled over into the Philippines as well. But we were shooting the 3040 Crag, the 4570, and the old Trapdoor Springfield. And the Spanish were shooting the 757 with a bold action that had a bigger magazine. And oh my goodness, they were laying down a lot of withering fire. And that woke up our commanders. And they designed a new cartridge after that, became the 1906 30 caliber, 30 out 6. And then we got sued for stepping on some patent toes over in Germany. <laughs> yeah, it's a complicated business. But the point is the 757 is one heck of a cartridge. It was one of the early bottlenecked, fairly narrow, obviously a 7 millimeter, 0.284 inch diameter bullet. And, uh, you know, velocity is up there around 2,700, 2,800 feet per second with 140, 150 grain bullet. And most famously, this was used by Elephant Hunter, Caramojo Bell, a Scotsman who went uh, ivory hunting over in Africa around the turn of the century. So say from roughly 1900 to 1912 or so, he was over there quite a bit collecting ivory back when they did that sort of thing in the market hunting days. And he was doing it with a 757 Mauser, 173 grain bullet, full metal jacket, military bullet. But he had figured out exactly how to reach the brain on an elephant for an instant kill. And he was one heck of a shot. He could even shoot flying birds out of the air with a 757, if you can believe that. That is a shooter. <laughs> so th that doesn't mean the 757 is the optimum choice for elephants or any large animals. But when you hit them in the brain, more than enough. So that sort of started the uh, modern bottleneck cartridge craze. And we've built on that ever since. A lot of our cartridges were built as a platform using that 757 Mauser. 
But as CEF said, is it coming back? Pretty much indicates it's not all that popular anymore. And it isn't. I mean, when was the last time you went saw one on a gun rack? Yeah, there a few of them are made, but they're kind of specialty rifles, sort of a nostalgic effect. You want to get a traditional blue bolt action rifle with a beautiful walnut stock. You might chamber it in 757 because that was kind of the classic in the 20th century, or at least the early 20th century. So its performance is pretty similar to the 280 Remington or the 7mm 08 Remington. And it's more than adequate, obviously, if they were using it way back then to take all these different animals. And just because I specified elephant doesn't mean they didn't shoot other things. I mean, Bell would typically shoot running buffalo, Cape buffalo. One shot kills on those as well. And again, probably his accuracy had a lot to do with it. But he took Eland and Kudu and Oryx and Zebra and you name it because he was supplying food for all these villagers and helpers that he had on safari. So he really tested that 757 and it more than measured up. And I have used it to great effect in Africa as well on warthogs and blesbuck and typical animals, Kudu. I absolutely love it. Mild recoil. Because it's the powder capacity is a little more than a seven millimeter O eight, but the uh, pressures aren't aren't as high. It doesn't have the chamber pressures up there in the sixty sixty five thousand psi. It's down around fifty four fifty eight somewhere in that range. So accuracy, it can be just as accurate as any other cartridge for hunting purposes. Let's not go with bench rest. Obviously, there's a few little tweaks in the case design that might work to your advantage for really precision shooting off the bench for a target. But for hunting accuracy, there's no reason why a 757 can't be as accurate as a 30 out 6 or a 308 Winchester or anything else. You just have to make a beautifully well-balanced, perfectly concentric rifle chamber, and then the cartridge and the bullets and all the rest of it, and you're going to have plenty of grand accuracy. You can easily get down to a half MOA groups. Recoil, as I already mentioned, is pretty moderate, uh, about like that 7 millimeter 08. And so what's that like? <laughs> That's about like the 270, a little bit less maybe, a little bit more depending on the bullet weight. So bang, great cartridge. Now, final answer, is it coming back? No. I doubt it's coming back. There's just too many advancements, especially with the long twist bullets. Um, it seems to me the 757s were twisted one in nine, which is pretty much the standard for most seven millimeters. So I think it's plenty, plenty fast enough to handle some of these longer bullets, but it's probably not throated, chambered and throated to really handle them, or they're not going to fit in the magazine. That's probably the biggest issue. See, the 757 came out before we standardized more or less our standard actions, 30-06 length, and our short actions, 308 length. It's in between the two. So it doesn't perfectly fit in the short action, although you can squeeze it in with the shorter bullets. And you want to go to those longer bullets, it's probably not going to fit in most rifles' magazines. So there's some of the reasons why I don't think it's coming back. I think it'll continue to hang around just because of its reputation in its history and just that that nostalgia that draws so many people to an old rifle like that. Kind of the same reason that we still think about the 470 Nitro Express in a Find double barrel, a side-by-side. -side. Not many people own one of those, but boy, if you start to dream Africa, that's a classic. So, yeah. So, bye-bye 757, unless you're an aficionado of hunters, heritage, and history, and all the rest. Great little cartridge. An online platform with no ads? 
You bet. You heard it right, folks. RSOTV, my exclusive content there is ad-free, and I have additional videos on hunting and hand-loading and guns and gun reviews, and there's more benefits. If you are a subscriber to RSOTV, you get 15% off on all the items in the RSOTV. TV store. So it's just $5 a month. If you'd like to join up, we would love to have you just hit the tab above. Thanks. All right. Briggs. Briggs asks, would you recommend using a bow or a gun for medium to large game hunting? And the answer is yes. It strikes me that I answered this once before. Maybe I saw this question once and, and commented on it. Um, online. But at any rate, gosh, yeah, the answer is yes. Go hunting with whatever's legal and whatever you want to, because it's all a grand adventure. It's all wonderfully fun and challenging. I'm mainly a gun hunter. I used to dote on bow hunting because I got to start when I was a kid, 12, 13 years old, and just fell in love with this whole idea of launching arrows. And I would hunt cottontails and squirrels and stuff. And then I would go deer hunting because I legally could. Back in those days, you could not go hunting with a firearm until you were 16, I believe, unless you had an adult with you. And adults back in the 60s were too busy working to take kids out hunting all the time. So when we wanted to run out and hunt and dad wasn't around or uncle or anybody, we could take a bow legally and go deer hunting. So ah, I love that stuff. So the bow hunters... If you're a bow hunter, you will get this. It's just so exciting to get that close to an animal. And it's so satisfying to make that draw and just make that perfect shot and watch the flight of the arrow. I mean, the whole thing is magical. And it I don't know of anyone who can bow hunt and not somewhere in the back of their mind be thinking about Native American bow hunters, um, Pope, Saxon, all the early bow hunters, Fred Bear. But you can go back to the English bow hunters, Robin Hood, any of that stuff. It just makes it all that much more rich of an experience. So a lot of fun, but you have to love stalking really close and the excitement and adrenaline rush that comes with that, getting that close to those animals. Or wait in a blind in a tree, and I think that's what most deer hunters do. They'll get up in a tree stand or a ground blind and let that game come close, but it is absolutely nerve wracking. You can't make a sound. I mean, even this pulling the arrow back, if you don't have a perfectly soft rest and you get a little bit of a squeak or a clink when your arrow hits it, if that buck's within about 20, 25 yards, he's probably gone. Or at least he'll spin right around and look directly at you. And then you're frozen there. He's looking at you, waiting for you to make that next move. So he knows he's got to run. Oh, yeah, it's exciting. Now, gun hunting, which is mostly what I do now, um, that gives you extended range, obviously, and more reach. And a lot of people think it's going to hammer those bigger animals and it's it's more fair to use a rifle because it's going to definitely kill one. You're not going to wound it. But bow hunters have proven time and time again that a good broadhead kills as fast as, if not faster than, most bullets. I don't really think that's a valid argument, but you got to reach a lot farther. So you should be able to take your deer at 100, 200, 300, 400, depending on how accurate your rifle is and how accurate you are. You're going to be able to bring home the bacon, so to speak, a lot more easily. And these days, a lot of people don't have the time to put in for bow hunting. Most of the bow hunters, I think, are in areas where they can, right after work, run out for an hour or two, catch that last evening rush of the deer coming out to feed and stuff. Good opportunities. but if you've got to take a long trip um, the way a lot of rifle hunters do, let's say you come out west for an elk hunt, 
might take you a long time to get a shot with your bow, whereas the first day or two you might see a herd out there close enough to pick off with your rifle, and then you've got your venison for the winter. So you kind of have to decide. They can both be extremely challenging and fun, entertaining, um, but if it's mostly I want to get that meat in the freezer because my wife and kids are depending on it, you're probably going to have better success with a gun unless you can hunt in your backyard every night after work. So, yeah, and size of the game doesn't matter. They have used arrows to take everything up to, including elephants, that just work extremely well. So, yeah, you might want to do what I recommend, really, both of them. You can hunt the the close stuff. If you've got whitetails in the neighborhood, you can hunt almost any and every day. The season is open. And then if you want to take a long trip someplace expensive, like up to northern Canada or Alaska or even down to New Zealand and stuff, you do it with your rifle so you pretty much know you're going to get a good chance at one. Whatever. It's all great. Hey, good question, Briggs. Gerardo. Gerardo asks if a rifle had a quick change barrel chambered in 30-06. Is it possible to swap out the barrel? And change the ammunition to a 270 without having to change the bolt. Oh, absolutely. Geraldo, the way this works, sw- switching barrels on rifles, is that you just have to have the bolt match up to the head diameter of the cartridge. And then the chamber of the rifle is chambered for that specific cartridge. So as long as the head size is the same or close, some of them will accommodate a little bit bigger, a little bit shorter. They're all center fire, so the firing pin is always going right to the center of each of them. And the 270 was made from 30-06. They just changed the brass shape just a tiny little bit and shortened it or lengthened it so that the two wouldn't necessarily easily interchange. Although I think at some chambers it can happen. I don't remember. I try not to play around with that stuff too much. But, yeah, it's it's the same basic cartridge. So it's the same diameter on the rim and the head as the 757 Mauser, the 25-06 Remington, the 338-06, all these different cartridges. Even the 308s and the 708s are all made from that same 0.473-inch diameter rim and head size. So, yeah, the bolt's going to fit just fine. And uh, several more rifles are now coming out with these switch barrel systems because so many people save a little money. You don't have to buy a whole nother gun. This started over in Europe where they couldn't buy another gun. You know, some countries over there allow you to have one gun or two or maybe five or something. But it's not like the good old USA where if you want another rifle, you just go buy one. But you can get a different barrel. So you have your action I guess registered, and then you just swap out your 243 for your 30 or your 300 Magnum or whatever. And sometimes, if you change the head size, you do have to change your bolt. So, from a 223 with that tiny little bolt diameter, you definitely need a different bolt. And if you get up into the really super Magnums with the 0.535 inch diameter bolt, you would have to change. But 30 out 6, 270, piece of cake. Okay, Mr. Hornig wonders what's the difference between the 35 Whalen and the 35 Remington? A lot. <laughs> Size and velocity and performance. The only thing they really have in common is they shoot 0.358 inch diameter bullets. They're 35 calibers. So the barrel's 35 caliber, the bullet's 0.358. Bang, and away they go. The 35 Whalen was made from the 30 out 6. Just neck it up to 35 caliber. That's pretty much all that was done. Pretty hard-hitting cartridge and 30-06 length, of course. 35 Remington, that thing I think came out in about 1908. And I know it was chambered for the 1908 auto-loading Remington rifle. And there were several versions of that cartridge. They just necked it up and down. I think they started at 25 and they went 25, 30, 35, 
I don't think they want any. Maybe they went to 30, 375. I can't remember. But at any rate, it's a lot shorter cartridge, less powder capacity, a little bit narrower. And it goes with uh, a lower maximum chamber pressure. You cannot push it as high as the 35 Whalen. I don't remember what the Whalen is, but the 30 out 6 case itself, I think, is at 62,000 for the 30 out 6. But the 270 version is 65,000 PSI chamber pressure. So I don't know what the 35 Whalen is, but it's got to be up in that vicinity, I would think. So it's a lot more powerful. So those are the differences, and they will not interchange, obviously. All right, we got time for some more. Yes, the team says, go for it. MJ asks, do you have a reloading manual that I recommend? Oh, yes, I do. All of them. <laughs> hey, this is the cool thing about hand-loading manuals. I wish I had one up here to show you guys who are watching this on YouTube, but the manuals give you all the instructions on how to use the equipment to load your ammunition. And some of them are put out by the bullet companies. Some of them are put out by the powder companies. I don't know if any are put out by the press manufacturers or the dye manufacturers. Probably not. I could think of Hornady, Nosler, Spear, uh, Berger, Barnes, uh, Norma, um, Hodgden Powder, Western Powder. There's just a lot of them from the powder and the bullet companies. Each one of them will have slightly different information depending on who built up the recipes using this primer and this powder and this brass and this bullet and all the rest. So they're all educational. And it's always fun to compare the recipes and say, now, why did they go with this powder instead of that one? And why did they get more velocity with the same powder than this one did with the same bullet? What's going on here? And it helps you think and figure things out to understand pressures and different potential chamber diameters, tighter chambers, tighter bores, influencing the pressures and the velocities and all the rest of it. The other thing that they have is really good basic information about ballistics and guns and how they work. What happens when you put a cartridge into a chamber? What's throat? What's lead? How does it all play into it? What is headspace? Most of these manuals will have that information in one form or another in there. So you understand what you're doing when you make reloaded ammunition. And I, some of them, I think, cover one topic better than the next. But they all, when you take them together and absorb it and start really appreciating it, one of them will highlight something a little better than the other. And then it goes, bing, I get it. That's what they're talking about. So I would recommend picking any one of them up to get started. And once you've done that, try another one, and then you'll start to understand, hey, this is some fun stuff, and I'm really learning, so I think I'll pick up another one and read some more. Okay, great question. And this is S.S. Earl, and he asks, what are your thoughts on Spindrift? Well, I don't think it much matters what my thoughts are. What, what really concerns us, what is Spindrift? The reality of Spindrift. The bullet is spinning because of the rifling, and that's what stabilizes it. Because of that spin, it has a drift in this direction. So if you have a right-hand spin from your barrel, your bullet wants to spin drift that direction. And it can be as much as 5 inches to even, I think, 10 inches at 1,000 yards, depending on the speed of the drift, and maybe the BC of the bullet. I'm not real sure on it, but it's a real phenomenon that most of us have always ignored because, you know, we shot to 300 yards, maybe 500 for a long shot, or even 600. And at that distance, it doesn't add up to a heck of a lot. But once we started doing this extreme range shooting, 1,000 yards and such, 
boy, it started to notice it. Like, what the hey? I, there's no wind out there, and my bullet struck five inches off to the right. What's going on? Spin drift. So it's something you need to dig into. Um, you're going to find this kind of information in ballistics books and hand-loading manuals often talk about it. And it's important to understand what your rifle will do. There are a lot of places that will list spin drift for this particular cartridge. 30 out 6 is famous because it was all figured out for World War One. The military did a lot of research on that. And I think that's where they figured out it was five inches with the load that they were using, probably that 150 grain load um, out at a thousand yards. And they would build it into the, the ladder vernier caliper sight on the back of the rifle. You flip that little ladder up and you can dial up with the numbers on there. So it's kind of like a, it's not a scope sight, obviously, but you can sort of dial it like you would dial tourists on a scope. It's pretty cool if you've got the eyesight to see it. <laughs> but they would slant that thing to make up for the spin drift on that particular load. All right. That's the best I can tell you on spin drift. You really need to investigate each cartridge and bullet and velocity and all the rest to really figure out what you need to know for that long range shooting to compensate for spin drift. Oh, and one more thing about it. They are building some scopes now and or range finders that have calculators in there that you can punch in the information about your bullet and it will automatically correct the spin drift for you and tell you where to hold crazy stuff. That's the kind of intelligence I need with my math skills. All right, one more. Okay, one more. Clinton. Clinton asks, what would you say about the 222 Valkyrie for coyote hunting? I think it's great. I haven't paid that much attention to it. Several 22s came out. I've been stuck on the 22-250 and the uh, Ackley version of it for quite some time. So I just really haven't messed around. But the 224 Valkyrie was built for shooting extremely long high BC bullets for long range shooting with a 22, which you generally can't do with a 22-250 or even a 220 Swift because those are set up for fairly short bullets, maybe 55, 60 grains at most and not your really efficient secant ogive long boat tail high BC bullets. This one was. So if you want to shoot a 70, 75, 80, even perhaps as much as 90, you're getting on the ragged edge of stability with a 90 grain, but there's where you're going to get the easiest way to reach that. It's chambered for those long bullets, throated for those long bullets and all the rest. It doesn't go as fast as a 22-250, but again, with range finders these days and you know your drops, you're more interested in beating the wind. And this thing will beat the wind with those high BC bullets. That's what the Valkyrie is really good for. And I think, I'm pretty sure that the Valkyrie is also set up for optimal use in the AR-15 length magazines and chambers and stuff. So that's kind of where they wanted to land. You Obviously, you can get them in a bold action if someone wants to make one. I don't know if there are any over-the-counter bold actions chambered for it yet, but that's what I can tell you about the Valkyrie. Definitely worth looking into. Thank you, Clinton. Thank you, Earl and MJ and Hornig and everyone for these questions. And especially thank you to the folks who wrote in with some corrections and some additional information on the uh, 50 Beowulf and the 458 SOCOM and the questions about the moose and the bears. That might be pretty important to somebody going into Alaska sheep hunting and they bump into Mr. Mad Grizzly and they'll be pretty happy they brought a 338 or something instead of their uh, 
6.5 Creedmoor. Well, those are the uh, questions and answers for now, folks. Once again, I always thank you for sending in those comments and the corrections. I just love to be able to, to give you good, accurate information. And if I mess up, I depend on you to straighten me out. This is Ron Spomer. Thanks for listening and join us next time on Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Mm-hmm.